You're listening to Beyond Synth, the best synthwave chat show there is. Hey there, welcome to the show. This is Beyond Synth, episode 342, and on today's show I am chatting with one of the hosts of Decoding the Gurus, Chris Kavanaugh. So this might be a weird one for my regular listeners, because uh, on this episode we touch on a lot of topics that we don't normally talk about on this show, you know, like culture war issues and figures like Jordan Peterson and the the modern public intellectual types and the far right and the far left and all that shit. So while I wouldn't say this episode is political, uh, there are certain topics that, you know, when you discuss them, they just have a political aspect, even if that's not the intention. I know I've made a point to veer away from topics like this on the show, and I know some of you are sensitive when this stuff comes up. So that's your warning. I should say, though, that this episode almost feels more like a private conversation I would have with, like, close friends. And, you know, of course, we still talk about movies and music and Star Wars and shit. I mean, like, I can't not talk about those things. Basically, you know, a few of the awesome Beyond Synth patrons have reached out to me, you know, wanting to have a chat sometime or join Marco and I for a conversation. And today's episode is me reaching out to someone in the podcast world that I respect and saying, man, I'd love to have a chat sometime and then recording that chat and then listening to Synthwave every 10 minutes or so. The point is... Uh, Decoding the Gurus is a podcast I really enjoy, and it was fun to be able to chat with Chris, and I think we both had a good time. Yeah, so with that preamble out of the way, let's listen to some music, and then we will go chat with Chris Kavanaugh. So today's show is brought to you by the kings of the Pattersons, the super generous and amazing Patreon supporters. All right, we are talking about... Mike Shima with the 82. Mike Shima is a cool guy. And then there's Chris Dance, Mike Erdahl with the 5666, and in the $50 Club, we got Brandon Decker and Tim Carlton. Tim Carlton is the guy that made the Cisco Hold music. Do you all know that? He's like one of the world's most influential secret celebrities. Anyway, thank you all for your support. You're all cool. So let's listen to this. This is Mitch Murder from the album Selection 4. And then when we're done listening to the tune, we'll be chatting with Chris Cavanaugh. This is Mitch Murder with Project 23.
All right, and that was Project 23 by Mitch Murder. And that is a cool song. And it was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters, Mr. Jacob Wick, my semi-sonic friend and dinner dog, who upgraded his support. Now on the Triple Four Pound Club. You keep changing your support. I gotta figure out a way to come up with a name for the club that you're in. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. And I am joined right now, this is going to be a little bit of a weird one for my audience, but not for me, because I'm a fan of this man's show. He does a show called Decoding the Gurus. He's one half of the hosts, and that's a terrible way of introducing you, but this is, (laughs) you are Chris, Chris Cavanaugh, is that correct? That's right. And I think that's fair enough. I'm the lesser 50% of the hosting team of decoding the gurus so you selected poorly but that's 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 accurate (laughs) wait no is that true i always got the impression that you're the one who kind of does more of the the research stuff maybe i'm mistaken oh i I, that's probably true but that that doesn't make me the better (laughs) person right in some (laughs) senses that makes me worse so um (laughs) I, yeah, Matt is the the more relaxed and joy free guy. So that's that's that you know the horses for courses. Most of the time on this show, I'm talking to synthwave musicians and artists and people sort of in the periphery of the scene. Um, but occasionally, just you know, based on whenever someone has a cool podcast I like, I'll have them on. Like I had Steve Novella from the Skeptics Guide uh, to the Universe on the show a few years ago and the producer of Mark Maron's podcast. Just if people do things that are cool that I like. And I discovered your show and I I think I burned through like all of them in like a month. Like I think I just started listening like maybe three months ago. Oh, I'm, I'm very sorry well, <laughs> for you to have endured that, but I appreciate that. So yeah, that's a lot of listening listening to me and and Matt so god bless you yeah <laughs> but it's a, it's a great show and at first it was actually kind of interesting because in the very first one I listened to I couldn't quite figure out what your accent was and obviously now it's very clear to me what it is mm. but for some reason on episode one it wasn't and then when I saw what you guys looked like I was like oh that's interesting yeah so my accent is noticeably Northern Irish still but it's a little bit inflected from various other places I've lived I'm from Belfast. There's a specific area of Belfast that I'm from. But I either, when I lived in Belfast, I was either told that I had a very strong, broad Belfast accent, or <laughs> I was told that I don't sound like I'm from Belfast. You know, I sound like I'm from, and there were various places inserted, including many places where English is not the first language, yeah. which was, <laughs> it's, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, depending on who you talk to, I either have a standard West Belfast accent or I have a, a bizarre niche accent <laughs> of indeterminate location in Northern Ireland. But I, I, I lived in England for eight or nine years. And then now I've lived in Japan for a similar amount of time, though I don't think I've picked up a Japanese accent. So yeah, it's probably just more my Northern Irish accent has slightly adjusted to make 
it more comprehensible. You know what's weird though, because when I first when I heard the first episode, I actually heard some sort of like Asian kind of aspect to it. I don't now at all, but for some reason in the first episode I did, and I actually expe- <laughs> I actually expected you to be <laughs> Asian, <laughs> and I don't know why. Because listening to you now, <laughs> I don't hear it at all. But for some reason, I did. Like probably what you picked up on is that because I live in Japan and you know I teach in Japan and so on, but also. When I was at university in London, I went to School of Oriental and African Studies, and I had a lot of friends from different places. And basically, my way of speaking one, I had to change it for English people so that it was like understand. You know, Northern Irish accent is pretty strong, um, and it was just annoying to have to repeat things. So my accent slowed down. Or my, my speed of speaking mm. and then from communicating with people who English is not their first language I probably picked up a way of speaking that you know makes it easier for people to understand not like not intentionally but just as a <laughs> like a survival right, mechanism right, right. so I would imagine imagine that I have that inflection a little bit I wonder I, I might go back and listen to the first one is it possible and maybe this is me trying to justify <laughs> my stupidity <laughs> but I wonder if it's possible that in the first episode maybe you were speaking more in that other way and you've sort of like leaned more into your natural intonation as the show went and you recorded more episodes is that possible or am I I'm an idiot maybe I'm just an idiot that's okay no no I like I certainly like that explanation more than like I was slightly imitating an Asian accent <laughs> <laughs> so that I, I prefer your explanation and it probably is true that like you know definitely Matt and I have become more comfortable talking and as a result it is probably the case that I'm speaking in the more relaxed way now you're probably picking up on something that's there and not me imitating a Japanese accent I might also be projecting as well because I'm one of those people who if I'm around somebody with an accent, I will start to do it. And sometimes I have to like stop myself. And like, I feel bad because it's not in my control. <laughs> like, cause if someone just rushes up to me and just is speaking in like whatever kind of accent. And if it's like a rush situation and I had to answer them really quickly, I will sort of speak back to them <laughs> in me doing an impression of their voice. And then I'm like, Oh fuck. And I almost like <laughs> have to like put my hands over my mouth. Like I was just possessed for a moment. I've met people that are very verbally fluent like some people with very strong accents who've learned to be able to turn on and off their accent for example and it always creeps me out <laughs> because i can't do that like i don't have any off switch but also i spent the first 18 years of my life or so not really noticing that i had a strong accent because you know i lived around everyone else with the same accent and accents don't really come up that much <laughs> when <Yeah>. you're <laughs> when you all sound the same but after going out of Northern Ireland, you realize, oh, that is a strong accent and it's a rather distinctive one. And, you know, I, I think a lot, myself and a lot of people in Northern Ireland regard it as like one of the worst accents in the world. But I've come to appreciate its distinctive charm. And, and my kids in Japan, because they speak English with me primarily and they, you know, they kind of learned English from talking to me, they also have Northern Irish accents <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of glad. I don't think they'll be glad when they're older, yeah. but <laughs> that's, they, they came over to Northern Ireland and everybody was kind of surprised 
that they sound Northern Irish. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's because it's they only have me to listen to. You need the power that Hans Gruber had in Die Hard. How like oh yeah, he speaks German, but then when he speaks English, he speaks it with a German accent, but also has the ability to speak English with a Southern U.S. accent. Yeah, and I always love that because I always thought, why doesn't he just speak? without the accent then if he's speaking like he he clearly can so it's a choice he has to make like when he's like talking to other people like he needs to maintain the evil german accent to like keep the thing going i don't have that power yet but i will eventually choose to maintain the like evil inflected northern irish accent yeah. just when i need to sound slightly intimidating or or, or hard to comprehend one of the two, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> well look listen i want to listen to a song and then when we come back i did a really bad job of introducing who you are because we haven't explained what your show is so let's listen to a song and then you can talk a bit about the show you guys do all right no problem so this is a cool song from andrew lucent uh from the album second chance and uh it's brought to you by my awesome patreon supporters we're talking retro serenade with the 41181 and hugh hefner in the 2666 club and this is andrew lucent with the rise of zargassus
And that was The Rise of Zargassus by Andrew Lacint. That's a cool song. And it was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club. We got a star apart, Alex Seligson and Blake Peterson. And we're back, and I'm here right now with Chris Kavanaugh, one of the hosts of Decoding the Gurus, uh, a show that I really enjoy. So why don't you... In the most succinct way possible, explain what your show is. Yeah, so our show, I should say our show, is looking at basically a whole range of figures, mostly people who are have become well-known recently, who fit into this role of what we've called secular gurus. So not so much your traditional Deepak Chopra alternative wellness, you know, alternative medicine guru or your cult leader, you know, L. Ron Hubbard Scientology type, but more in the vein of Jordan Peterson or Eric Weinstein or Nassim Taleb. These people who, they're not overtly religious in most cases, although Jordan Peterson there might be some questions about, but they're not overtly (laughs) religious and they tend to be offering a kind of secular philosophy often tied to politics or you know, contemporary culture war debates and yeah, so we try to look at people from across the spectrum and the way the podcast works is we take a piece of content and then we analyze it and I'm a cognitive anthropologist and the other host matt is a psychologist and so we use our backgrounds a little bit because we're we're interested in conspiracy cognition and just critical thinking and these kind of things so we use our backgrounds such as they are to talk about the content and what the people are doing in it and we play little clips to illustrate it and yeah that's what we do so we're like we're often fairly critical of the people that we cover mm-hmm. but that's not it's not the intention just to like tear people down we've looked at people that we like and we've looked at people like Carl Sagan um, and a Jesuit priest that was popular in the 80s Anthony DeMello so there's a broad array of gurus in modern world and we're interested in looking at them all (laughs) I imagine the most common criticism you get although maybe I'm wrong is that so many of these people have produced like thousands of hours of content and I know that whenever I would see these people criticized in the past a lot of the people who jump to their defense will always just say like well you haven't you haven't listened to all 2,000 hours like how can you judge mm. this person if you haven't watched like 80 million of their other videos so like I imagine you get that and I'm just wondering how you deal with it we do but not as much as you might imagine because we're very clear up front that we're we're not taking or attempting to take a person life work we're just looking at a specific piece of content in depth and then we usually look for long-form content that is recommended by people so you know this is typically like two to three hour conversations that people have where they they often get quite in depth about their opinions on things and so in most occasions it is a fairly useful representation and what we've tended to find is that although you know there might be content which is non-representative if you take it like a random piece of content um say from scott adams the dilbert cartoonist and you selected any random day you will find that he does very similar things (laughs) every day and the same goes for people like russell brand or jordan peterson for that matter so 
you know, you could get unlucky and just hit a piece of content that is completely unrepresentative, but the kind of themes and talking points are very consistent, usually, across their content. And also, because we spend multiple hours, our podcasts are often two to three hours going through the people's content, we don't get accusations that much that we're being superficial. Right. <laughs> you know, in my case... I've often listened to a lot more of the content than we cover. So that other people do get accused often of having like a superficial familiarity with the people. But if anything, we sort of get accused of the opposite of like being obsessive critics. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It's sort of unfair because I find with these sort of secular guru types, they somehow get to be allowed to be experts on everything and be able to comment on any single thing. But in order to properly criticize, you need to be specialized. Do you know what I mean? It's like it takes like an expert to have to weigh in and be actually, you know, what you're saying is incorrect. I I am a biologist and I studied this and this is why I can critique you. But meanwhile, a secular guru can just sort of say anything about everything and get away with it, which is why I always find critiques of these people is often difficult because as soon as the person criticizing them shows that they're not an expert in the thing that they're talking about, then they're immediately dismissed. Like the criticism is is thrown away, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the, there is that. And there's there's only really two options that, that a lot of the fans will take. And the options are either you don't know enough of their context, like you say, you know, you haven't watched their 15-hour series on the Bible or whatever the case may be. Mm. Or the opposite is like, you're too obsessed with criticizing them. You're nitpicking their content. And there's rarely a happy medium. So it's either you're an obsessive critic or you're like, you know, an ignorant critic who doesn't know enough. There are very few critics of, you know, good character who are recommended. And the, the gurus also tend to use that kind of defense so and this is one of the things that often annoys us about them is that they wax lyrical about the importance of having difficult conversations and you know being willing to critique what people are saying and and discuss with people with diverse you know political positions or whatever but they're incredibly thin-skinned about criticism right like basically if you do harsh criticism most of them will never speak to you and and very often they'll they'll encourage other people not to speak to you or that kind of thing so it is a very clear double standard and that's one of the defenses that we often use whenever we're talking to people which is like you know people say well why do you have to critique them and look critically at their content and you know in most of these cases the people have put out multiple hours often hundreds of hours of indulgent conversations with people who broadly agree with them yeah <laughs> and they've got large audiences and lots of fans telling them they're great and it's like you know it's okay for somebody to look critically at your content and have not as positive feedback but you would think it would be okay but it, it often it doesn't go down very well there are some exceptions to that like we've had sam harris on the show and we just had a long discussion with him I don't think we agreed on things at the end but like to his credit he came on and had a multiple hour discussion with us so there are exceptions but it's it, they're exceptions yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> well, look, I want to keep talking, but I first I want to I want to listen to some more music, if that's cool with you. <laughs> so uh, I got a cool one here from Max Parker from the album Outside, and it's uh, brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club. Well, there's Cargo Cult Luau. We just had him on the show last week. And Johnny Five and Joseph Richards. And this is Max Parker with Last Dance featuring Young Empress. Day. 
And that was Max Parker and Young Empress with the track Last Dance. And uh, that was a cool song. And I had uh, Young Empress on the show earlier this season. So if you uh, dug that, go back and listen to that one. Because that was a fun show and they make cool music. And of course, it was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club, like Mr. Ken Giroux. And it looks like Mr. Magoo Samurai has rejoined the Patreon. So thank you so much. You're a cool samurai. And we're back, and I'm here right now with Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus, and we're talking about gurus and what makes someone a secular guru. So, yeah, like when I f- discovered your show, why I I just found it so interesting because for me, um, a lot of these figures when they popped up, and I'll say it was probably around like 2015, 2016, and I don't talk about it, you know, very often on on the show, but you know. The, like Jordan Peterson and the Weinstein brothers and uh, uh, not the one who jerks off into plants. What's the... Uh, <laughs> are, are they actually Weinsteins? They're Weinsteins. Yeah, they are Weinsteins. Yeah, like okay. Einstein. Yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, you know, some of these people, and they would go on Joe Rogan's podcast and I would, I would watch these big, long, three-hour conversations and go like, wow, this is some interesting novel ideas. And then there was a point where the spell sort of lifted off me and... Ironically, it's it's funny because like people like Jordan Peterson, for example, I didn't really have a lot of contempt towards. Like I know a lot of people who like just fucking hate him and a lot of people who love him. Mm. And I'm sort of like I was sort of more interested in his wacky professor side. So like the, you know, analyzing the Lion King with his students and like talking about the metaphors. Like that's <laughs> the stuff that I liked. And then whenever he would start talking politics, I was less interested. It didn't interest me. And it, it seems, though, that maybe they do the market research over there and they go, actually, when he talks about this stuff, people get real excited. So we're going to focus more on this and less on The Lion King. <laughs> so that's the way I felt. And then there, it was only after about, I don't know, maybe like a year and a half or so. And I was really going like, wow, this, you know, these people are saying some interesting ideas. And this is some, and, and, and oh, wow, these SJWs are crazy in this. And to their credit, there were some crazy SJWs. Right? <laughs> like you would see these things where Jordan Peterson's giving a speech and there's people like chucking garbage cans like on the outside of the building and stuff. And I'm like, okay, like that's pretty fucked up. But then after like a little bit, and I think it was like even like the second time Jordan was on Joe Rogan's podcast. And I was like, he's saying the same stuff he said last time. It's like, but again, for three hours, and I guess Joe was fucking high because like he didn't remember that these were all the exact same things. And then uh, there started to creep in a lot of repetition. And because I, uh, you know, like I'm more like a science guy. So like I listen to more like science-based podcasts and things like this. I am just more interested in solutions, I think, than whining. And I just got fed up with all these people going on these podcasts, talking for four hours and essentially just complaining about how everyone else is an asshole, but like not really offering any tangible like solutions. And the only solution that seemed to come out of like Jordan Peterson was like, go to church, which like isn't really too valuable to me as one. With Jordan Peterson, somewhat similarly, I I think both myself and my co-host Matt found some of the initial you know vitriol directed at him a bit much based on what he appeared to be saying and you know because like I I remember seeing him interviewed by Kathy Newman and like most people I felt that she was you know kind of being a bit belligerent to him and misrepresenting him and, and in that interview he did this part where he explained the concept of regression like the the basic idea about regression analysis and he and he did it quite well and i was like oh you know i kind of appreciate that approach you know it's showing nuance and it's 
introducing academic type ideas in a nice way. But whenever I actually started paying attention to his content, the thing that struck me like straight away was how deeply religious it was. Like he really, really likes the Bible, like hugely. <laughs> that was, uh, and there's nothing. No, exactly. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. But what I started to notice was this weird double act he was doing where he would never be clear about his religious beliefs or his political beliefs while simultaneously very strongly signaling his political and religious beliefs, but never answering pointed questions about them. Like it's it's why in some ways someone like, you know, uh, uh, Ben Shapiro or something is less frustrating because he is a right wing political pundit. So you can't be surprised about his political views because like that's who he is, whereas Jordan and some of the other ones would sort of skirt around this thing and be like, well, you know, I'm I'm kind of religious, but really not really because I listen this and he'll start talking about like the fucking five, whatever with the personality things or whatever, you know, like, oh, yeah. well, I'm, you know, I'm high in agreeableness, but I'm low in conscientiousness, whatever. Yeah. And at the same time saying, you know, well, I'm not really religious and then give a bunch of speeches at religious events and like. Clearly, these people wouldn't invite you to be a speaker if you weren't religious. I think that specifically in my case, because I'm an anthropologist and I specialize in the cognitive science of religion, and I'm also somebody from like an, an Irish Catholic background. So when I when I listened to Jordan's content, the first thing that struck me was this is very religious and like it's kind of standard religious apologetics, but it's dressed up with psychology um, and I, I also teach in the psychology department so I'm familiar with psychology and I find plenty of stuff unobjectionable and you know self-help advice that seemed reasonable he said you know he has various clinical psychology things which are fairly unobjectionable but he mixed that in with these like really huge leaps mm. and these kind of you know metaphysics stuff that was what struck me was oh this is strange this is somebody you know making these suggestions that like maybe these ancient depictions of like coiled serpents are indications that people knew about the structure of dna thousands of years ago and they'd <laughs> add in disclaimers and stuff but i was just like wait what and, and and there was there was lots of things like that where you'd be just listening along another example is he talked about how religious art like depictions of, you know, the Virgin Mary or whatever, that people go to museums all over the world to go and gaze at religious art. And this kind of says that there's something deeply communicated, you know, that even secular people are kind of drawn to these truths that's in religious art. And I was just listening to it go, but like, I lived in London, the Tate Modern with the lobster phone <laughs> attracts a large amount of people. And so does that mean the lobster phone is communicating, you know, a deep, like maybe it is but you know it, like you mentioned you know skepticism i just picked up on a whole bunch of like fairly straightforward obfuscations or cherry picking results and so on and and, and yeah and it, it's not just jordan but it's a lot of people like that but in that sense i actually think that's part of the reason that we find the guru type people interesting because they often aren't entirely straightforward and they're doing something like more complex and appealing 
than you know straightforward religious apologetics or something like that right. so it's kind of like an, an interesting puzzle box for academic type people <laughs> or or it looks like academic stuff but it's not quite that yeah i think that was the key i think remember when he did he did like a thing with sam harris where they did these speaking things oh uh, yeah defining truth yeah and <laughs> <laughs> And in that one, uh, Sam Harris had a great line where he said exactly what I was thinking, because, you know, obviously Jordan has a large religious audience. And, you know, in my opinion, anyways, what he does for them is give religion this air of like scientific yeah. credibility, even if they don't understand what he is saying. Yes. Because what he's saying, some I, I don't understand what he's saying. Right. So I know when he would give those biblical lectures and like I, I even watched some of them and I'm like, but I, I then, like I say, I prefer the wacky side. So I like when he would do a 15 minute tangent thing on psilocybin <laughs> because that was funny to me and the religious stuff was like secondary it was like you know you're waiting for him to go off and yeah you know i so i know that he would be up there and he has the credentials of being you know professor and he understands science and this so that when he goes up there and says these things have some sort of scientific basis it means that people can rest assured like oh no like this really does mean something and when he and sam harris did those things i remember one time the audience like burst into like applause after something jordan said and then sam's just like I don't think the people applauding know what they're applauding about. It sounded good, so they clapped. And then you knew that if you actually went and put a microphone to the audience and said, what exactly did Jordan just say? They wouldn't be able to answer you with any sort of concrete sentence because like, it was just something that sounded good. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the things that we like repeatedly find is that the kind of people that we are covering in the so-called guru sphere... All of the people there possess a really impressive facility with language. They're very good with metaphors. They're very eloquent. They're very often quick on their feet or well-spoken at least. And they can have these conversations and all of the external signs are pointing towards this being an important philosophical, academic, erudite conversation about a topic. And it's got all of the superficial trappings that you're being shown something, uh, you know, that's very important and insightful. And this isn't to poke fun at the people that are in their audience, because I actually think they're very good with what they do and that it is satisfying but it's it's kind of like intellectual junk food in the way that you're describing because you feel like you've spent three hours and you've heard these big ideas and all this kind of thing but like really what you've just heard is douglas murray and jordan peterson talking about you know themselves and their own ideas and like there are parts of that that are fine and there are parts that are hugely speculative and extremely questionable and it's that mixing of the two things together which is the issue yeah totally it's the way that they draw comparisons and link you know religious ideas to scientific ideas to political ideas and they have a way of talking where it makes sense while you're listening to them but for me the spell wears off when i'm done listening like it's like you brought up earlier about jordan's opinion on the almost like supernatural experience of being in the presence of religious art but like you can walk into a church that was built hundreds of years ago and you can be in awe but to me 
it's not necessarily because of the affiliation with religion. It's like you're literally in a very old, impressive structure, you know, like giant 50-foot ceiling and carved pillars and yeah. looking at a 500-year-old 20-foot stained glass window and there's like an echo in there. And, you know, its existence itself is impressive. It's an interesting point because, like, it is completely true that lots of, like, large architecture and classical buildings or whatever, a lot of that tends to be associated with religious institutions or religious just traditions and it is often awe invoking but there's a question there about you know the chicken and egg scenario because like invoking feelings of awe the way Jordan and co want to do it is like that that is because of the religious aspect but like you suggest it can be that humans find huge scale buildings awe invoking and inspiring and so as a result like if you want to build something impressive that's what you do mm. in the same way I, I was recently listening to Jordan and a bunch of people and they were talking about kind of religion and Jordan was explaining how if you want to do science and you believe that there's an external objective world that that basically requires you to have a metaphysical religious assumption because otherwise why would you believe there's an external reality and he <laughs> him and the people he's talking to they layer in all these things and you just it kind of washes over you and it kind of sounds good but if you just stop and pause and you like break down the steps in your argument you're like wait what <laughs> like if i want to say that there's an external world which exists independent from me and and that like which science is investigating i'm required to endorse that there is a like metaphysical deity that caused that to be and you're like no you, you're not actually <laughs> you're not required and but, but you know if you say it in such a convincing fa fashion and you kind of reference classical literature and scientific theories and psychological terms as you do it it sounds a lot more profound than if a priest in a mass is just sitting there saying you know if you want to believe in science you have to first believe in god you'd be like no yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not correct but you know people don't push pause and do that because it's like not a very natural thing to do but that that is what we do on the podcast so it's just to say like the gurus a lot of them they're they're impressive in their own way with what they do there's a reason they've got huge audiences and they're popular and it isn't just that they're bastards <laughs> like they're <laughs> They're able to make things sound interesting. Well, listen, look, we gotta we gotta listen to another song, okay? We've been talking for too long here, and we gotta listen to some music. And then uh, when we come back, you can explain to me what a cognitive anthropologist is, because I'm not <laughs> convinced I know fully what that is. So it sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, so let's listen to this. I got a cool one here from Conrad Solinsky, and it's brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the twenty-five dollar club, like Neverman and Restless Nights. You guys are awesome. Awesome. And now uh, check this out. This is Conrad Solinsky with Pursuit.
And that was Pursuit by Conrad Selinski. And that was a cool song brought to you by my cool patrons in the $25 Club. We are talking about Robot Conglomerate and Wayland Cascade Geospatial. And we're back. We're here with Mr. Chris Kavanaugh from uh, Decoding the Gurus. And... Uh, we were just discussing uh, some some big ideas. We we're making some sense. So, what is? You say you're a cognitive anthropologist. So, what the hell is a cognitive anthropologist? Yeah. So, there's you know all academic disciplines. They like to fracture and carve out their little mini domains. And anthropology is no different from that. And there's actually <laughs> this is so boring for people. But you asked, there is <laughs> there is a different meaning for cognitive anthropologist in America than in Europe. So I'm from Europe. So my cognitive anthropology essentially means that as opposed to social and cultural anthropology, which is the classical image of an anthropologist, right? The people that go and live in communities for m- multiple years and produce ethnographies um, and who are very, I would say, roller hostile towards empirical science. That's the kind of standard in anthropology, in social and cultural anthropology now. I'm on the other side, kind of of the dark side of anthropology because we attempt to quantify things in a manner similar to psychologists and empirically minded sociologists so we run experiments in labs or at the field and investigate the kind of traditional topics of anthropology but from the perspective that humans are evolved creatures with a certain set of cognitive architecture and that this impacts how we produce culture so it's It's kind of related to experimental psychology and social psychology, but probably the distinguishing feature is like, to give an example, I was studying painful collective rituals that people do, like fire walking or bathing in cold water together. And we did some studies in a laboratory setting where we got people to do these artificial rituals that we created and we changed the conditions um, when people were doing it. In some conditions, they had like screaming infants while they were doing this artificial ritual and in other ones was quite comfortable with you know just random baby noises in the background um, and and that's uh, you know relatively comfortable that's similar to experimental psychology but then we also went into the field to a bunch of firewalking festivals around Japan and we collect data from the people at the firewalking festivals, the performers and the people watching it. And it's very messy and, and difficult to collect data in those kind of situations. But that's part of the thing with cognitive anthropology is try to involve like actual communities and go out into the field a bit more than the, you know, sheltered psychologists just hanging out in their lab and running online studies. <laughs> That's the difference. So what is the goal? Oh, the goal? Um, well, <laughs> I, broadly speaking, to build like a cumulative empirical science about humans and the cultures that they build and the the social environments that they create for themselves. But in my particular subfield, we're interested in exploring religion and ritual, not from the perspective of whether the belief is true or whether gods and whatnot exist, but just from what people doing ritual activity or belonging to religious communities, what effects that has on themselves and the the relationships with others so it's just the overall goal is like to empirically and scientifically 
approach human cultures and try to understand what we're doing better. Like, do you want answers that transcend a particular belief? Like, do you want to go like, we analyzed all these different like religious things and it turns out drinking the wine at this thing gives the same hits the same part of the brain as the drinking the goat milk in this tradition or whatever like is that the idea i'm not a huge fan of the neurotheology or the you know the the is that what i just did efforts to well no you did you didn't but like these efforts to very strongly you know there there was a trend to talk about the god center in the brain and you know all of these and i think there's there is interesting work there with like people doing transcranial magnetic stimulation and and being able to invoke you know kind of peak experiences which might be reminiscent of religious peak experiences but i think in in the other school of anthropology the focus is very much now on emphasizing individual cultures and their distinctiveness right they don't focus so much on a comparative approach anymore they want to understand it, this particular culture or community in its specific culture and they don't want to universalize out from there because that was like kind of tied to colonial approaches and and is seen as like imposing western scientific approaches on cultures and communities where it doesn't really fit um that's the side of anthropology that is you know the mainstream but the side that i'm in is very interested in looking across cultural regularities and recurrences and attempting to examine for instance that religion is very different all around the world there's lots of different traditions they've got lots of different beliefs different gods lots of things but there are aspects which are recurrent and which you can find in all religions and to what extent are these due to you know shared features of cognition or is it cultural distribution from similar sources or this kind of thing so the side of anthropology that I'm in is interested in looking cross culturally and finding similarities or differences is okay if you find that there are these kind of components which are recurrent across different societies and different religions that's very interesting and if you find that actually this doesn't apply in these specific contexts and they have very different traditions which are just culturally derived that's also interesting so we have like a win win because it doesn't it doesn't matter either way so then what were you trying to discover then by having babies cry at people who were in cold water what was the mission those people weren't in cold water they were just in a cold laboratory but oh, okay the, yeah the the interest there is like if you get these small groups of people to perform this artificial ritual right and we had a cover story and stuff which said it's a ritual instruction that we've recovered and we kind of said anthropologists because they're weird like to get people to do rituals and then ask them about you know the experience and and this they think will give them insight into what ancient rituals might have been about that's not true <laughs> anthropologists don't do that but we that's what we told people to get them to do this weird ritual and we said we're going to play some signs which we think are you know would have been in the environment at the time of the ritual and then our interest is if we make the environment unpleasant dysphoric which listening to a screaming infant for 15 minutes is indeed dysphoric and unpleasant. Or if we make it, you know, like more pleasant or, or neutral, does the same ritual result in like different attitudes towards the other people that you do the ritual with or different attitudes towards just levels of generosity or that kind of thing? So we were 
we were looking at whether it produces more pro-social in-group activity afterwards. And we experimented with that by getting the same people to do a second, what was supposed to be like a second study, a completely unrelated study um, that was about economic games, but it wasn't a separate study. We just wanted them to play economic games together and see whether they were more cooperative. So, Wait, so, so is the idea then because like different cultures will have these sort of rituals that people go through or sometimes, you know, like boys at a certain age or whatever would like do a trial or something. And, and the idea is if you do these activities with other people, how that strengthens the bond between the people you did the activity with? Is that the idea? Yeah, that's part of the idea. Like, you know, there are initiation ceremonies and there's hazing ceremonies and there's ceremonies in militaries and martial arts clubs and stuff that are painful. And the people at least believe that they help to increase bonding. And so one of the, one of the things that we were doing that experiment, we were doing some things like about memory and stuff as well. But, but one of the things was just, are people nicer after they do that experience together? You know, if it's more unpleasant, are they nicer to the people? Um, and are they nicer after a delay? Like if they come back a week later and are playing economic games where you can cooperate or be mean, does their behavior reflect that? So that that kind of thing. And in that setting, it's very artificial. It's, you know, it's all in the laboratory. It's with people you don't know. So the rationale is that if you find an effect there, if you find that people are indeed nicer to these strangers, you know, if they have like an unpleasant ritual experience together, then you would expect if it's an actual community, if it's an actual ritual that they find meaningful, that the effect would be much stronger. So it's it's kind of like testing it in a very pared down way. Oh, okay, so because in the lab, obviously, you can't hurt anyone. Like, that's the idea. So the baby crying is to substitute for, like, you walking out and, like, whipping someone in the ass or something? Exactly. You can hurt people in the lab, but it's much harder to get it ethically cleared. And <laughs> ethic boards are kind of more okay with short-term mental unpleasantness. Uh, than they are with, like, say, long-term pain, physical pain or that kind of thing. So discomfort, psychological discomfort, is okay. You know, people hear crying babies all the time in their life, but a prolonged exposure to crying infants is not a fun thing. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) It's the best. Running those experiments and being in the room was unpleasant. So having to do this ritual where you've just learned the steps and now you need to, you know, follow them and concentrate while that's ongoing. It's just annoying. <laughs> so, right, yeah, yeah. so we, we, we might have experienced, you know, more what happens if you annoy a group of people together. But yeah, that kind, that kind of thing. So that's, you know, that's not cognitive anthropology in general, but that's my little slice of cognitive anthropology is around that kind of topic. Well, instead of listening to uh, crying babies, how about we listen to some cool music (laughs) (laughs) and then we'll uh, keep talking. So I got one here from Midnight Fury and it's uh, brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club. We're talking about your friendly neighborhood raccoon Petey and Slade. You guys are all awesome. And now uh, check this out. This is Midnight Fury with Dark Hero.
And that was Dark Hero by Midnight Fury from the album Infinite. And uh, that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. There's Forged in Neon with the 2049 and Joshua Winter with the 20. And we're back with Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. And we just learned about cognitive anthropology and subjecting people to the sound of crying babies. And uh, why did you move to Japan? Is that where the cognitive anthropology is at or what? Uh, well, there's a lot of interacting factors there. But like I, I always had an interest in Japan and Japanese culture. I studied Japanese a little bit at, at university. But as part of my PhD research, I wanted to go and do research at festivals in Japan. In particular, because Japan's an interesting case where you have lots of ritual activities and you have these quite dramatic rituals. But you also have fairly low levels of personal commitment to any religious tradition or overt religious beliefs. So if you're interested in like ritual psychology, it's a it's an interesting environment because you usually don't get so many rituals with like firewalking and that kind of thing that are not tied to religious beliefs. But Japan has that in spades. So that was the interesting thing. But the, the other side of it is my wife was was slash is <laughs> Japanese um, and she became pregnant during the PhD and so coming to Japan to do field research was also convenient in in lots of personal ways so yeah it, it was like a confluence of factors but it, it wasn't that like cognitive anthropology is really big in Japan like it's not I, I I was based in a social psychology lab for my PhD research here, so it's not a booming hive of cognitive anthropology. I don't think anywhere is. <laughs> I might be focusing too closely on the, the firewalking aspect of this, but how does that relate to like the Tony Robbins type things? Those like seminars and stuff where they also will do sorts of activities like that? Like does that connect in any way to like if it's done culturally versus if it's done as part of a what do you even call those seminars those Tony Robbins things yeah like business retreats or you know personal development yes or when, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. But, but exactly what you said about you know does the religious setting make it any different from you know people doing firewalking as part of a team building exercise on a corporate retreat that's a good question and it's the kind of thing that we're interested in because it does look like that getting people to do those kind of ritual events together is a powerful experience and that you know people like Tony Robbins and and various other guru genuine guru type people are leveraging you know ritual psychology in order to make money <laughs> and but also to kind of create the sensation of of being connected so i think you can activate ritual psychology in all sorts of settings outside of religious settings and it is activated often in contexts like when you start studying rituals you start to realize rituals are everywhere <laughs> and it's probably the same with everything but you know like the inauguration ceremony is a thing which we looked at as like a public ritual and you can just see like even the way that you know you choose to greet people or whatever like greeting rituals rituals are all over the place so yeah it doesn't the firewalking is a particularly dramatic example of it but i do think there's probably a lot of interconnected psychology going on in like firewalking rituals in religious 
settings and firewalking rituals and business retreats. I was actually curious. This is sort of like a bit of a deviation here because I, I mean, I've listened to pretty much all of the shows you guys have put out. As far as your pop culture references, like how old are you? Uh, thirty nine. Okay, so 39. we're okay. So I'm forty. So I was, I was wondering because I mean, I've heard you mention like that you have listened to like synthwave in the past and stuff, and there seem to be a lot of references to the Ninja Turtles a lot. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I do realize that we have referenced them multiple times, but I don't think that is because I was a huge Ninja Turtle fan. <laughs> but it's uh, it, it, it's just that the characters of Krang and and <laughs> the Baxter the Fly seemed particularly relevant to two people that we discussed. So yeah, but. But it, it, most of my references are from like growing up in the 80s and 90s. So like you mentioned, I first got into lo-fi, like lo-fi study beats kind of the stuff. Those those fucking things that always have pictures of like Bart Simpson on them with like weird wavy stuff. No, it's it's like anime girls just like drinking coffee oh, or okay, okay. like yeah, staring yeah, yeah. out a window. That, that kind of imagery but then i came across you know kavinsky and pogo and that kind of thing and that led me into discovering the existence of retro wave and and synth wave which hit all of my nostalgia buttons and like you know the kind of stuff like kung fury yes. parody that came out like i think 2015 or thereabouts like i i really enjoyed all that sort of stuff so the synth wave thing was like oh this is great <laughs> this is what something that i didn't know existed and i'm very glad to have found but i'm basically at the mercy of the curated <laughs> synth wave albums on uh, spotify that's how i consume which is probably a bad way to do it but that's what i'm doing so yeah i definitely enjoy 80s references and 90s references just like anybody my age does and i will also say that listening to synthwave while driving at night in tokyo is a (laughs) specific kind of experience it's a it's an interesting one so yeah that's that's nice i'm not often driving in like central neon drenched tokyo um because that would be a nightmare to drive but i am (laughs) often driving around because i commute in and out of the campus late at night so yeah i (laughs) i i feel that i am correctly embodying you know the aesthetic as i (laughs) drive along although my car doesn't look like the way it should on the album art but yeah Yeah. (laughs) but for you like what are like the main nostalgic things i just assumed it was ninja turtles because it's one thing to mention ninja turtles blankly but it's another thing to then reference baxter stockman or whatever because that takes like a slightly (laughs) more you know <laughs> I, I mean I guess I know the name too because I played the video games and stuff for me my favorite 80s cartoons was like I loved the real Ghostbusters and yeah and I loved the Batman cartoon but that was like 1992 or 93 or whatever when Batman the animated series came out but it was still okay to watch cartoons <laughs> it yes, was still alright <laughs> and that was a particularly good one yes so those references just kind of spring to mind like you know we're on our current podcast we're dealing with the fact that matt made disparaging comments about robocop and that has led to (laughs) us getting a streak of negative reviews i hope that's where you get the most negative review (laughs) because like (laughs) 
that's funny to that's, me. Just you think all the complaints would come from other places, but the second you say it like Robocop's no good, it's like nope, unacceptable. I didn't even say it. I like Robocop. Well, yeah, well, clear, no, Robocop is amazing, but yes, go on. This is this is true. So, um, yeah, but that I think speaks to the fact that our audience probably skews to a slightly older demographic, you know, or not like slightly older, but like our age. Mm. So that means that, you know, references to like Predator and Robocop and whatnot are going to come more readily than references to twilight sure. I, I don't know what or harry potter so i don't think there's anything wrong with that that's growing up in the 80s and 90s and as the the aesthetic choice of like the current generation shows like they still appreciate that so i'm i'm kind of okay with it but i'm less okay with being known as like a teenage digital <laughs> fan hello you know, I, I feel I probably shouldn't even say this, but my son's one's ten and one's three, and they've recently been watching Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was like a, a recent series, like, you know, one of the various reboots they've done of it. And it's very good. I was, <laughs> I'm like, I'm enjoying it. But this this is not... I haven't been consuming Ninja Turtle stuff in the past couple of years. I've just <laughs> recently started to watch it because of them. So <laughs> Okay, it's just... There's just something funny to me about a guy who doesn't really care that much about Ninja Turtles having to talk about Ninja Turtles. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, it's awesome. Uh, but look, as we're uh, recording this chat, uh, you guys just put out what, you know, might be one of the funniest episodes of your show, for me anyways. And uh, I want to talk about it. So let's listen to a song and then we will talk about uh, making sense of sense making. <laughs> so uh, I got a cool one here from Baldo Caster and uh, it's brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters, the Buchelman twins, Rachel and Sarah. Thank you so much for being cool. And with the 1980, it's Zach with an X. And I uh, hope you dig this. This is Baldo Caster with Oberhaus. <laughs>
And that was Oberhaus by Baldo Kester. And that's a cool song. I had him on the show, I guess, last season now. But uh, every time he puts out a new EP, man, I'm always buying them because that's the kind of sound that I dig. And uh, it was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. Uh, There's Gene Creamer, Private Eye, Rawr, and we will never forget the immortal Chris Salayalane. And we're back with uh, Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. And uh, I mentioned it before the song, but you had a recent episode where you and Matt covered this video called Making Sense of Sense Making. Mm. With, was it Jamie Wheel and Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger? These are people who I've never heard of, by the way, until... I'm sorry. I, dude, <laughs> yeah. but this was the funniest episode, and every time you teed up a clip, like, these guys talked, they did this roundtable of fucking nonsense and it was amazing it was like every clip you played they would just go around and like they're patting each other on the back and they're making all these references to like movies and terms and things and to me sounded like a parody like if this was like monty python style like you know tim heidecker is yeah yeah yeah, he did a great parody. He did an awesome Joe Rogan one. Yeah. Which was amazing. But, like, I bring him up because he's done several comedy videos that are, like, so dry. Like, he had this series called The Trial of Tim Heidecker where he's on trial for murder and it's filmed exactly like you're watching those court TV videos and performed completely straight. And, like, that's all I could think of while I listened to these three guys talk in that sense making video. It was, like, super dry comedy. And, like, once I started hearing it as comedy, I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah, the like Matt and I have had that specific episode of their round table on our radar for like over a year and we'd we'd watch various parts of it, but we basically had a react a reaction which I think everybody does, which is like, oh, this is like after you listen to about 20 minutes you're kind of just like oh my god there's another two hours of this <laughs> so we we did take quite a while to like build up to release it because it was it was very hard to do and because they're saying so little but with so many words and i do think that in most occasions like you know okay we're making jokes and stuff like that in between and we're kind of pointing things out but like really we could have just played the clips yeah <laughs> and you know they they kind of speak for themselves so we didn't really need to do that much on that episode apart from just kind of introduce the clips because it's indefensible even if you're a fan and you think that's okay that's good you know that's just people having a conversation but you know by the 20th clip we've played or whatever you have to agree that's a pretty indulgent conversation <laughs> right and i'm in academia <laughs> <laughs> well look i'm going to uh, play a clip so the audience knows what we're talking about and it is really hard to pull a short clip from this video but i think if you hear a good four minute chunk uh, you'll get the point. And then just imagine that this goes on for another three hours. So uh, here is a clip from uh, the video Making Sense of Sense Making featuring uh, three intellectuals. So we actually want to know lots of stuff. We want to have really amazing frameworks. We want to have a lot of life experience. We want to bring that all the way in. But then we also then want to have complete non-attachment to any of it and be able to create a bespoke synthetic language in real time if necessary. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. I mean, I loved all of that. Okay, so this is really exciting to me. So I've got lots of senses. 
right? And they're all taking in some true information. They can all have error and they're all partial. I also have lots of actuator. I can move lots of different muscles. And of course the, the leg doesn't want the, to compete with the arm for which one gets to be the actuator. It actually wants to not just coordinate, but to be in a kind of coherence, right? And so I've got lots of sensory stuff. I've got lots of actuator stuff. Why is it that it's not just random splotches of color and sound, but it comes together into a coherence of self and world and self in relationship with world as a coherence phenomena? So how all the sensing comes together inside of me is a coherence phenomena. That's the binding problem in neuroscience, right? And in the philosophy of mind. And then the actuator, how do all those parts work together so well as a coherence phenomena? So if we think about that every human on their own at the next level up is sensing, making sense, and actuating. But then when we come together, I want you sensing stuff differently than I am. And I trust that there is information in that that I actually really want to have access to myself and I want the collective to have. And I want you actuating differently than I am. But I really want to come into coherence. So we're all different organs bringing different perspectives. When we come together, we get dimensionality, right? We get, whether it's echolocation or binocular vision, we get more out of aggregating and integrating our realities. That then becomes, as you said, not just fragmented data feeds, it becomes a gestalt umbel. It becomes a, the reality for some suprasensible version of us that is greater than the sum of its parts. So... You said initial conditions, good with novelty and anti-fragile. And then you also said, hey, the mind that's running, like you take the societal structure off, but the mind, the mind that was formatted to support this social structure persists, even if you have this experience, it's going to get looped back through old, fundamentally game habits and patterns, which sounds super fucking fragile. Because, right, like right now, coherence is highly, highly fragile. Oh, yes. And yet you're also saying it either has an inherent property or maybe you just hope that it would be ultimately, eventually, anti-fragile. Can we pull that apart? Because I think we um, wouldn't be having this conversation if it was a done deal yeah. or if the first time people glimpsed it were like, fucking got it, let's go rock with this. This is actually wildly delicate. Yeah, I think this, if, you, if you hold in your mind the, the example that Daniel gave, that this happens to be like the best current example of coherence, and it really is in the entire universe as far as we know it by the best actual example of coherence and then we say okay well if we do the anthropology and we take a look back and say okay well how long did it take to pull that shit together finding remember I had that spot in possibility space so imagine a cube and in that cube let's make the cube one million by one million by one million so it's a big cube okay and all over there are different kinds of uh, phenotypes Hominids happen to be a sphere about a thousand by a thousand by a thousand in that cube. Mollusks are down here. Inside the sphere of hominid, there's an even smaller sphere, which is Homo sapiens, which is maybe five by five by five in terms of the possibility space. And of course, you're talking sentient biomass. What's your what's your million cube? My cube is the uh, well. It's actually an n-dimensional space, but I'm reducing it to three to make it work. So don't put indexes on otherwise. It's don't talk, don't talk down to the me. The metaphor example doesn't, exam, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold. It's so the, uh, how do you find in the totality of all the things that are going on a particular complex that hangs together to achieve a particular um, homeostatic autocatalytic phenomenon that has the things necessary for it to actually hold coherently? 
Okay, so when you heard this shit for the first time, you must have been laughing, right? Because like, oh yeah, I, I yeah, was yeah. laughing out loud at this. Like, it was so funny. So we got told off by I can't remember if it was a couple of people or whatever, but we were told off uh, by listeners before that they didn't like if they could hear our reaction. Oh, like when you hear yourself giggling as it's playing? Yeah. Yeah. So like, some people like that, some people don't. But we decided, okay, we'll just you know we'll mute ourselves whenever the clip is playing because it, it does feel a bit you know like mean. Mm-hmm. On occasion, if you can hear us, but we we do have to delete that because both Matt and I are just like very often going, oh my god, right? At like very specific points, and it's it's impossible not to because you. Of course, we make the clips, so we've listened to it all. But you know, we have like you know a hundred clips or whatever, so you don't remember, and you just remember the general thing. And then when it plays back, you're like, oh my god, <laughs> what they it? did. They did. And then, like, uh, very recently, an episode we just recorded had um, Jordan Peterson and this guy, Jonathan Pajot, talking about a glass on their table, a glass Mm. that they pick up, and they talk about the glass, and it must be six minutes of discussing the glass. And basically, the fundamental thing is, like, you know, a glass, when you look at it, it reflects light, and you can look at it from different angles. You know, if you look at the atomic level, it's not really there it's like you know a collection of and and they just talk about a glass and the thing that they want to say is because you can perceive a glass that that means that there is a religious impulse and it's likely that god exists (laughs) but there's no like they don't ever directly state that they just spend six or seven minutes explaining that like science cannot explain why people can perceive a glass and you're like i think it I think it can. Yeah. I think it can. Like <laughs> at least as much as the explanation that it's because of God. And but that's the thing. It's just like it's kind of amazing that people could spend so long just chatting about a glass on the table. You wouldn't think that you could get so much mileage out of that. But well, <laughs> well, what a skill though. Like because honestly, that sense making one. Believe me, like I oftentimes I would never understand what these people were saying anyways, except if I could insert myself into the room, I would be that guy just going like, what the fuck did you just say? Like, can you repeat that again or what? Like just I'd be saying what constantly in the corner and that sense making one. I, I don't understand what that conversation was about. Like, I still don't. It's three hours long. I think they're trying to figure out how we can get along. Like, was that the point? Like, I actually don't know. That's the point. Okay. Get, get the game B, right? But but the problem is you can't define game B. You can only talk about what it is not. <laughs> so that's the... You got to get out of game A, which is everything, to game B, which can't be described. So game A <laughs> is just the real world and how we perceive it, and game B is just not that? It's, game A is probably, <laughs> like, all the things that humans have been doing up till now and and it's all wrong it's all the bad parts like game game b is all of only the good parts and it's like them on on crack right like it's (laughs) they they do think there was wisdom in the tribal societies and all this kind of thing but like it needs to be ratcheted up now in order to prevent us from like killing ourselves with nuclear weapons or global warming or whatever but the basic message of you know let's get along better and let's be careful about the fact that we can build nuclear bombs and stuff and this seems a problem that's all true but it's just i don't think 
they're offering anything beyond that like just saying the world now is a you know messy place and we we need to it's going to be hard and you're like yeah no shit (laughs) (laughs) like it's i'm not sure that the the people involved are helping except that they're producing supplemental brain pills to sell yeah (laughs) (laughs) so well i somehow got less from that conversation they had like i did find it really funny though like so i mean it was that so that was good part of the reason that we can kind of poke fun at the figures that we look at is they take themselves much more seriously than you ever could Mm. right they really don't have a sense of humor about themselves and just puncturing that air of self-importance and just like highlighting what people are actually doing and you know you're just having an indulgent chat that's why matt and i have no pretense about what we're doing and i imagine it's you know the same for most people like you've got a podcast about a thing that you like and you talk to people that you like or people that have the same interest and you know that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do and it's it's fine and it doesn't have to be world transformational or like you know philosophically important for the world (laughs) yeah well look i'll tell you what uh there's nothing more philosophically important to the world than listening to cool synth music (laughs) so uh here's a track from ogre and it's uh brought to you by my awesome patreon supporters we're talking about albion algorithm andrew bennon barry 007 and krizak hatterack and uh we're gonna listen to this track and then we'll uh, keep chatting so this is ogre from the album cybercism with die by the sword
that was Die by the Sword by Ogre, O-G-R-E, and that is a great song. Of course, Ogre is awesome, and he does the theme song for this show. So uh, if you dig music like that, go check him out, because he is uh, he's one of my faves. And uh, we're back. I should say that song was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. We're talking about Energon Cubes, Jacob Pringle, and John Masari, who I believe is actually doing some work on the upcoming Killer Clowns video game, because of course John is the guy who scored the movie, and now I believe uh, the game as well, so that's pretty cool. Maybe I can hit him up for a free copy when it comes out. Anyways, we are back with Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus podcast, and we've been uh, making sense of sense making. <laughs> and you brought up a good point before the song, which was how these, you know, these guru intellectual types don't have much of a sense of humor about themselves. And I yeah. think that's the biggest barrier for me. Because in real life, you know, the people who I can't relate to or make me feel uncomfortable around are humorless people. Like, they're like aliens to me. Yeah, and it's both an Achilles heel and a superpower. Because one of the things that we keep coming across the podcast is just like, there are people that are massive narcissists who, yeah. who have like huge reserves of confidence, like unbelievable levels of confidence and self-belief and they they don't care about receiving endless abuse and criticism for what they do because they know they're right and that's like that's a really powerful thing to have because it kind of means that you can just pursue whatever you're doing and which would include like promoting anti-vaccine stuff right because you know that you're Right. But the flip side of it is that those people tend not to poke fun at themselves and see, you know, the kind of funny side of things. And that is like you say, I think that is a very important thing to be able to do. And it's a warning sign when people can't do that. I, like you, am much more comfortable around people that are self-deprecating. But I think that if you are able to kind of show how seriously they're taking themselves and, and point out to people like what they've actually done or achieved right, and how it doesn't match up to their self-presentation, it's actually a useful way for kind of countering what they're doing as opposed to you know, having to argue about their specific theories, which are often impossible to argue about because they're not really scientific theories. They're just like things which are said on podcasts. Yeah. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not writing papers. They're not like testing things. They're just talking yeah. for hours and hours. And it's fine. But like, as long as people appreciate what the person is that they're listening to, like, you know, listen to Joe Rogan all you want. I like listening to him interview Carrot Top, for example. That was an interesting interview. But Joe Rogan's opinion on vaccines or anything to do with science is absolutely worthless. He knows nothing. <laughs> he, kn he actually knows... <laughs> he knows the reverse of nothing because he he has spoken to many scientists who have given multiple hour lectures in, you know, how evidence works and stuff. And he's still at the kind of conspiracy theorist contrarian position that he was at many years ago. Yeah. And for me, it's not like when I hear these people talk, like I'm, I'm angry about whatever their point of view is. It's like I said before, it's just the selling yourself as one thing, but then 
saying or doing another thing. And in, in the case of Joe Rogan, like I preferred listening to his show when it was fun. Mm. It became sort of less fun. But then they would still use the defense that it's comedy. So he'd be like, uh, well, it's okay. Hey, I'm an idiot. I'm a comedy show. And I'm like, you had a guy like an anti-vax dude talk for three hours and you didn't crack a single joke. No. So you can't say in that particular instance that this was a comedy show. But when he has comedians on and they have a good time and shoot the shit, like those are entertaining to listen to. Like if these got people on who are actually like funny and entertaining but then he'll have like a you know quote unquote like science guest on and then it's like a serious show and it's like well then it's not a comedy like that that episode wasn't you know like it was just him sitting there whoa and then some old man can just say anything like you know the world is hypnotized oh that's very interesting instead of going like what the fuck do you mean is there a machine is there a hypnosis gun like what the fuck are you talking about those are the questions I would ask the other thing that he gets is that you know that he doesn't really have strong opinions and he's just having conversations but like that's not he is doing that for some things but like if you listen to joe's content you know he brings up covid and vaccines almost every episode he was bringing it up for you know years and his opinion was not like randomly distributed he was very critical anytime he had on a guest who was you know promoting vaccination and and explaining you know why covid is serious and he was extremely credulous and and very uh, yes and with every conspiracy crank that he had on you know yeah. he, he offers like minimum pushback so that is not having no opinion that's having your specific opinion and like uh, you know pushing it in every episode so i find that you know you should call a speed a speed so like rogan was one of the major platforms for a while there and he he still i think he he still leans this way although you know the covid pandemic is ending but he was one of the biggest platforms for anti-vax messaging in the world Mm. and it's okay it should be okay to talk about that without people getting all upset because you know the other anti-vax people like uh, rfk jr and andrew wakefield they basically don't get mainstream platforms and people understand that when you're talking about a health issue you don't need to invite the anti-vaccine contingent to present their perspective but with rogan that's what he was doing so i kind of think that's okay for him to decide to do but then you should be allowed to criticize him for doing that but people get very defensive about you know he's he's just just having conversations and you're like no (laughs) that's a very specific narrative that he pushed on this show and he got pushback for it but it didn't have any major impact anyway like he still believes the same things he does he has whatever guests he wants on and the warnings that are on his show on spotify you know there's a little blue tag that says for information about covid go to blah 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 yeah that appear on his episodes anytime he mentions covid we have them on all our episodes as well. Yeah. Where we mentioned COVID. And obviously we're not promoting anti-vaccine perspective. So all of that sound and fury and it did nothing. You know, the episodes where Rogan promotes anti-vax people, they're still up there. And so anyway, this is just a sore spot for me. It's funny because you obviously then you know what the things 
you know, that he's passionate about, because obviously anytime anyone brings up like weed or MMA, then he launches into a thing because those are his, that's his wheelhouse. And the thing that, you know, I sort of started thinking about a lot more, like after listening to your show is like, you got that category in your garometer called like galaxy brain. And it is a thing I start to notice now where you just, you have so much more respect for somebody who can admit they don't know something. You know, and someone's like, well, how do you think, you know, your weird expertise, like, relates to, you know, the Ukraine? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm not a political scientist. You're right. And then you're just like, oh, thank Christ. But then meanwhile, <laughs> yeah. all these gurus, you ask them any single question ever and they've got an answer. Like, they will always say something as if they are, like, experts in everything. That's why, like I said at the very beginning of this conversation, why it's so frustrating to even just challenge what they're saying is because, like... You almost need like 80 people on one side to be like, all right, I'll tackle it whenever he talks about climate. Oh, okay, I'll do whenever he talks about this and that. Even um, uh, another podcast I started listening to after listening to your show called Knowledge Fight, which is these guys who basically just listen to Alex Jones and like, that's it. Yeah. Like, that's the whole show. It's just the whole show is just dedicated and you have to dedicate so much time because these people produce hours and hours of content every week and it's almost like every one of these people needs their own dedicated adversary <laughs> to just say okay i'll watch fucking eric weinstein's podcast every week like that's what i will do that'll be my <laughs> job and and that's almost what you need yeah it's a sad reality but the, like i genuinely you know there are people that do it better or worse, there are these like little, you know, kind of commentary podcasts or communities that spring up. And I do think that like they are important. They can be parasitic, right? There, there can be people whose content is just like drama reacting. You know, this is like I'm just thinking about like Twitch ecosystems and all that. But like in, in terms of the podcast space, it is like that. And that's partly by design, because if you take a figure like Stefan Molyneux, which people may or may not know, but it was like a kind of manosphere figure, a Canadian YouTuber. Who was just, I would just like to say, incredibly creepy, but obviously so. I know he's gone off all the platforms now, but like if you ever even just saw like a still image of that guy, you'd be like... Oh, well, he's a creepy weirdo. Like, that was my initial instinct before even hearing words. And maybe that's a bit prejudicial. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's a fucking creepy guy. And he'd speak right into the camera and say some really fucked up things. And it was like, whoa, this dude's intensely weird. I mean, he, he ran the predatory online cult that encouraged disenchanted teenagers to cut all contact with their families. So, yes, he's a creepy guy. And that was before <laughs> he got into white nationalism mm. so he's always been a very creepy guy but he also was on rogan right uh twice in fact and he also had a youtube channel i think with maybe not a million subscribers but it was a it was a very popular channel and you know he interviewed chomsky interviewed various big name people and if you saw an individual video of his about like you know he would do kind of history things about the fall of rome or whatever it could just look like a kind of don carlin-esque thing right somebody doing a three-part series on some historical event so i think that that guy <laughs> he he was good at what he did but in any case i mentioned him because he put out about three hours of content a day, similar to Alex Jones. 
And there were parts of it that were like community advice, like giving advice to people. Ostensibly, he claimed that he had a philosophy podcast, but it was it was just culture war and that kind of thing. But he would also give advice to his listeners about, you know, their relationship problems or their problems with their family. And it was really creepy. <laughs> the advice was always really <laughs> creepy. But the thing is, if you wanted to really understand that guy and what he's doing, as you indicated, it would be a full-time job to dig into what's going on in his community, right? And who the people are that are running things and, you know, where the money is coming from and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the chances that you would actually make any dent on anything is quite low. And that's just one person. Yeah. And there's huge ecosystems and there's whole separate ecosystems on all the platforms, right? Twitch streamers are very different from YouTube or very different from podcasters. And yet there's all this, you know, similarity with parasocial cultivation and all that kind of thing. But it, it's exactly what you say that like lots of our lives now are online and there's been like an explosion of online communities and, and people catering to people who are looking for people to follow. And I think it's like a golden age for gurus, which is good for our podcast probably bad <laughs> for the, the world but um the internet has really done a number on making it easy for people to find communities and on the one hand it's very good because you can find these niche communities and interests and you know if you want to discuss the latest westworld podcast for four hours you can have podcasts and communities that want to do that too but on the other hand you just have a lot of rabbit holes that go pretty dark places and i think there were always dark rabbit holes but they were previously a bit harder to wander into so that's an unfortunate side effect yeah and to that point like i've also seen communities slowly devolve into more negative spaces and it's not always about like finding those internet rabbit holes but also like the space you're in sort of becoming one mm. but look how about this uh we gotta listen to more music and then we'll we'll keep talking because this will flow right into one of my favorite topics on this show which is uh <laughs> complaining about star wars so let's uh <laughs> let's listen to this i got a cool synth pop one here from oblique and Bunny X. It's brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. We're talking about Night of Ducks, Kudzost, Matthew Lister, Monkey Magics, Polydigital, and Pud Nuts. And, uh, and this is Oblique and Bunny X with Thing For You. Don't even know I knew you'd 
And that was Thing For You by Oblique and Bunny X. And uh, that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. We're talking about Rama Branch, Run the Skyway, Tristan Waits, and Will Lowe. And I'm back here with uh, with Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. And we just touched on, like, internet rabbit holes and stuff and, you know, the negative online communities. And, and that leads into something that was close to me when The Last Jedi came out. Because, like, I was, like, not a fan of the direction Disney took with the new Star Wars movies, like, specifically The Last Jedi. I thought Force Awakens was fine, but like, you know, The Last Jedi depressed me, and I truly thought that there was some kind of disconnect between, like, the mainstream published reviews and the fan response to the movie, and I felt almost, like, gaslit in a way, because at the time, because if you said publicly that the movie wasn't good, and I know this personally, because this was how I was treated on Twitter, that I was wrong and a bad person for not liking it. Mm. You know, there would be accusations of being racist or sexist as if, like, The Last Jedi is so perfect that the only possible explanation for not liking it is that, like, you are a fundamental asshole. (laughs) And then I found these YouTube communities of people who, like, felt the same way as I did. And it was comforting. You know, it was like, finally, someone's being open and honest, you know, about this fucking movie. But then these communities started to devolve and focus almost entirely on, you know, anti-woke, anti-SJW, anti-feminism communities because they saw that they got more views if the audience was angry about something and they kept finding things to be angry about. And some of this anti-woke stuff really does get, like, just fucking pedantic. It's like criticizing a movie trailer because there's too many black people or because, like, someone has an SJW haircut and, like, they haven't even seen the fucking movie. And then, like... The thing is, I'm sure if I sat down with these people, we'd probably agree on, like, the movies and TV shows we liked and disliked, but instead of being a space to, you know, have interesting or insightful conversations about why these modern movies aren't working, they're just focused solely on just anti-woke culture war bullshit. Yeah, I I mean, I completely get what you're saying because, like, my son was in the Star Wars and was looking forward to The Last Jedi and after The Last Jedi came out that basically killed his interest in Star Wars yes. and he, he wasn't part of like you know an anti-woke mob he's a kid over in Japan who was like enjoying Star Wars and didn't like that movie and, and neither did I and like it is frustrating that almost any opinion about popular culture gets wedged into a culture war thing like you know what's that series that's out now on Disney like the um, the She-Hulk yeah, she hulk Well, like this is something I've been saying for a little while, like on the show. Is just my main problem isn't if you like or dislike She Hulk, because honestly, to be fair, like none of the new Marvel stuff is really good. No, like it's all just sort of fine. But I just don't believe that these people that passionately hate this stuff. They're just doing it because they're cultivating these audiences that just feed off being mad about everything. And for me, She Hulk being a bad show doesn't mean anything to me. Because I don't care about the character of She-Hulk, and neither does anybody. So, like, if you're going to go on a show and be like, She-Hulk, this is terrible, toxic writing and anti-male and stuff. It's like, dude, you don't need to watch it. I'm not going to say it's... I think it's a cute show, but it's not, like, a great thing that I'll ever watch again. But I've watched some of it, and it's like, it's, you know, it's there. (laughs) You know, like, it doesn't offend me because... 
I already have my things I'm passionate about, and I'm not going to add stuff to the list just to be mad about it. Like, it was the same with Captain Marvel, where they're just like, oh, you know, she's a feminist and said some feminist stuff on, like, some red carpet event or something. I'm like, who the hell cares what actors say off screen? Like, we never gave a shit about this. And now all of a sudden, when an actor has any sort of, like, activist opinion, they'll turn on the entire project. Yeah, the culture war, like, kind of comes to be the lens through everything, and people get really invested in it and it is very frustrating but I kind of feel like there's always fuzzy boundaries in this kind of thing but I think it is possible to tell the difference between somebody that is just riding an outrage train and you know kind of has a very strong ideological opposition to something and somebody who on the other hand who like let's say is really really into Marvel and they really don't like the direction that Marvel has taken like post Endgame and I I'm kind of fine with people having their opinions even if they're strong ones where they don't like things but I like you I just think there is a point where you have to you have to let things go right and and kind of accept all right other people think different that's all right and you can still be you can still be critical but i do i kind of get the dilemma a little bit for people that are very invested in something like star wars right hugely invested in that and then they all have opinions about the movies and stuff and then rian johnson's movie comes out and suddenly it's now like your opinion on that movie signals something about your politics or something like that. And I kind of get why people would be frustrated. Yes. Right? Like, because you, you're just like, no, it's okay. You can dislike, <laughs> you can, like, you don't have to like the movies. You don't have to hate Ghostbusters, the remake, because there's, you know, it's a women cast, but you don't have to like it because it's a woman cast dealer. And that's the thing that frustrated me the most was I don't like being associated with shitty people, but the problem was. We share a lot of, well, I mean, not on everything, but I mean, in, in terms of like, <laughs> in terms of this stuff, if I had a conversation with those people and we never talk politics, we would probably agree that like, hey, these new Marvel things aren't good. And I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Like, I'm a, like a classic Doctor Who fan. Mm. So I haven't liked Doctor Who for like eight years either, you know, and it, it wasn't political. It was just like really messy writing. It was just when they brought in black characters. That's yeah, yeah, when yeah. you decided. <laughs> <laughs> It was just a coincidence. <laughs> You're right about the frustration, though. Like, because I know that's what was driving these people who didn't like The Last Jedi, and I felt the same frustration that I had what I considered valid opinions, and I can't express them because it's a signifier. Like, saying publicly, I don't like The Last Jedi means something, and it means something to people that for me should just be I didn't like that movie yeah like that's that's what that sentence should mean and I think I resent The Last Jedi the most for that reason because it's like the first movie I can remember in my lifetime where it's like saying your opinion on a film says something about you and that sucks because up until that point I feel like anyone could just say their opinion on a movie 
And it was just like, yeah, you just you like that movie, you didn't like that movie. And then all of a sudden now it's like tied to something. And it's so disappointing. But it's like clear to me that Disney knows this behind the scenes or else they wouldn't have done all these course corrections like with the third movie or the, the tone and style of the Star Wars TV shows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Star Wars sequels, I think I had the same opinion everyone has, which is they're fairly forgettable. And then The Mandalorian came out and it gave people, you know, the little nostalgia nostalgia treats but it was also a pretty good story seemed to treat characters the way you know the you would want a bit fan servicey and stuff and it was it was well received and i just feel like okay it's not like everything has to be this this big culture war tinge thing it's fine to just be like okay look if you can do nostalgic fan service good and you can do it bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's all right. It's, it's all right. It doesn't have to relate to Trump. Yeah. <laughs> to acknowledge that. So, yeah. At the end of the day, because I'm such a nostalgic guy, none of this new stuff is going to replace my favorite movies anyways. You know what I mean? Like, what new movie are you going to watch that's going to be better than fucking Predator or RoboCop <laughs> or, you know, like whatever, the original Star Wars trilogy? Like, you know, all those things are always going to have a place in my heart. You're never going to top them. Yeah. And the, there's a lot of it which is tinged with, you know, whatever age you were when you consumed X, Y, and Z. But there's also just, you know, there's classics like the original Alien and Aliens are just really good yes. movies. No matter what age you see them. But I, I'm like, fine whenever there are, the, you know, the people in 20 years time or whatever who are like really, really nostalgic for Twilight. That's fine. <laughs> There's like, yeah. they're going to have their moment in the sun as well. And they'll probably, I feel like the culture war will still be consuming everything then. But it, it's impossible to escape the culture war, you know, if you're online. But it's okay to be a conscientious objector. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you left a funny space. <laughs> well, that's that too. It is okay. You can be one of those. But I, I think part of the issue is that people let those things consume their mind and each to their own. But I think you could be doing better things. <laughs> and I, I would include in that synthwave. I'd include in that, like, you know, appreciating that type of music. And that is a perfect uh, segue to listen to some. So <laughs> here is a cool song from Polly Foo. I think that's how you pronounce that. P-A-U-L-I-P-H-O-O. Polly Foo from the album Shivers. And uh, it's uh, brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters like Gary Heather, Fuzzy Saber, and Jean-Christophe Leconte. And uh, this is Polly Foo with Night Rain.
And that was Night Rain by Polyfoo from the album Shivers. And that was uh, brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters like IP68, Jonathan Harden, and Non Solo Inglaze. And uh, we're back with uh, Chris from Decoding the Gurus. And we're talking about nerds being sucked into the culture war dynamic and complaining all the time. And, and you were sort of saying, you know, why waste time complaining when you can just like appreciate like the good art and stuff? And this is what I would say to all the nerds, you know, who are upset. It's like, go make something then, right? Like, are you going to sit there and spend your your whole life just complaining about how much all this stuff sucks now? Or you can see some of these communities. They've got like, like they'll post a video and there's like 100,000 views and everyone in the comments is like, oh, this stuff sucks now and stuff. I'm like, you're telling me out of the 100,000 people that watch this, there isn't 10 that are like 3D animators? I mean, I bet you they're all like obviously nerds. So like, I bet you could get together a little team and go like, why don't we make a little short science fiction film of our own, you know? and and make something like that should be the bottom line like prove the big fucking hollywood system wrong and go make something and see you know how popular it becomes and stuff but even like wokeness and the common complaints aside there are still other problems with these modern movies and marvel ones especially that irritate me and one of them is just how meta everything is now Everything relies on you understanding things before you go see the movie. And obviously with Marvel, you need to know like 40 films to understand what's going on. On another level, because the language of cinema, you know, has been evolving this whole time. There's a lot of shorthand that happens now. It's like, well, you know, the strong silent type character trope. So we're not going to bother fleshing this character out because you know this character because you've seen it before in other movies. And I think so many of these shows and movies now are like, they're just assuming you are literate in TV and movies so they don't need to explain things. And I think that's what makes older movies better is because they stand on their own. It's like they have to explain their world and they have to, you know, explain the characters as if you don't know who they are. And now like everything I see now, it's like you can't have time travel in a movie without a character making a back to the future joke. Do you know what I mean? Why don't you just have time travel in your movie without a a wisecracking character that has to talk about another movie, you know? Yeah, there is a lot of like self-referential comedy and, and references and things now. And I mean, this doesn't really make the argument one way or the other, but you know, Frank, Miller, the Mad Max, the recent, most recent, what's it called? Mad Max, what was the Fury, Fury Road. Subtitle? It's George Miller, isn't it? Is it George? Yeah, uh, sorry, George Miller. Yes, George Miller. So, you know, of course, that's drawing on the franchise, right, of Mad Max, but I, I was listening to an audiobook about the making of that, and there's there's just so much that goes into the world building there, right, behind the, the scenes, like, so un- much that's unused, which is, you know, just there and kind of makes the world deeper. And you you feel that whenever you, you watch that movie because you get the impression that there's a very big world and these things make sense, but, like, you don't get to see it all. You just get to enjoy the film. And there's lots of films which do that really well, but I understand, like, why that's harder because it literally requires you doing massive amount of world building and work yes. to make that kind of fiction. So I kind of understand when people go the other route of like, maybe we can just slip in a reference to Marty McFly. Yeah. <laughs> but like when the television show Community came out, which is also like a super meta show, I really welcomed it because it was sort of novel then. 
to be like, oh, like this show actually references like TV tropes and movie tropes. And it was fun because as a nerd, I knew those things. But now it feels like everything is that. Yeah. And that's what is a little disappointing because you feel like you're saying, like you feel that prep work when it's there. I always use this example, but like, you know, you watch the behind the scenes of like Blade Runner and they did full on like makeup screen tests, like on a set with actors and actresses just to see that they looked good. And then nowadays you see a Marvel movie and they don't even know what the fucking superhero's costume is going to look like. Like they're running around in a green suit going like, well, we'll animate it. And then you'll see like different versions of what their suits are going to look like before the final movie is done. And can you imagine making a movie and you don't know what the main character looks like before you start filming? Like it's crazy. But, you know, a movie in the 80s or the 90s like that shit. You had to build the costume, so you had to know all that stuff before the movie was made. Yeah, there's probably, you know, an element of old men shaking their fists at clouds, but like at the in the same <laughs> respect, when you compare the original Lord of the Rings trilogy to the Hobbit trilogy. Yes. That's a, but that's a good example because there was so much thought put into the Lord of the Rings and it's it's not like they didn't spend money they didn't have good actors they didn't have good CG budgets for the Hobbit but it is more like one of them was this project that was you know all encompassing and they they spent so much money on miniatures and all that kind of stuff like things that people wouldn't I think usually bother with now and the Hobbit was like whatever its artistic merits it was seems to have been mostly you know a, a cash grab franchise cash grab extending out a short story in the uh, like a sequel trilogy really for Lord of the Rings and but that's the thing one feels timeless to an extent and like a, a movie series that you know my kids can watch and enjoy and the other is The Hobbit yeah <laughs> which I don't think anyone is going back to except for diehard fans. Yeah, that's another thing with the the culture war stuff, which I find interesting because I'm actually watching the Lord of the Rings show right now, which is on Amazon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen one or two, and I think it's okay. Like it's like it's not the best thing I've ever seen, but like She Hulk, it's another one of these shows where the online hate is so disproportional. But to be fair, I think it does have very clear flaws, like the Lord of the Rings show. Like for me. One of them is that they definitely made some intentional decisions to cast the elves with actors who are not like the tall, slender, kind of androgynous actors with the long hair, you know, like how they looked visually in the Peter Jackson movies, which for me was kind of the biggest problem because in this show, there's sort of less that distinguishes the elf characters from the human characters. But I thought the overall tone of the show worked for me and like the visually looks great and it has a good cinematic score. And what I find funny about you know the online people who are most vocal about hating the show is like they'll say things like you know well Peter Jackson would have never compromised Tolkien's vision and you know insert stuff for people that shouldn't be there and all this and I'm like you saw the Hobbit right <laughs> like where, where is this fucking Peter Jackson wouldn't compromise shit when he fucking added literally like four hours worth of content to a story that wasn't supposed to be there like don't give me that shit about fucking you know this homage to Tolkien I saw a fucking barrel chase scene where the the fat dwarf got stuck in a barrel and then like smashes his arms out the sides of the barrel and was like axe fighting with some orcs <laughs> like the barrel was armor like it's a fucking stupid movie like <laughs> yeah that uh, I've, I, I I just have 
blocked out. I don't even think I saw the full trilogy, which is like a testament to how forgettable that was. But I, I agree. Like I've seen some of the new Lord of the Rings series and it's very impressive budget and, and seems okay, you know, more enjoyable fantasy stuff but i also like like before i kind of it is one of those like poison apple things where there's all the stuff about the racial dynamics <laughs> with the elf and there's all the stuff about the female main character and various reactions to her but like i also i have sympathy for the people who are like they like the character of Gladriel and as far as they envisioned her she was like this badass sorcerer queen right like she's portrayed in Peter Jackson's like original trilogy and in this one she's like a warrior just a really competent warrior and it's I can see why people would be like well but why couldn't she be badass without you know why is a badass have to be you know like Jean-Claude Van Damme as opposed to like uh, you know in in Game of Thrones people really like the character of Tyrion but it wasn't because Tyrion is an action star it was because he was so smart and I mean that's another series that went completely off the edge but it just it's a good (laughs) illustration that you can have like badass characters who are not badass because of being warrior types so I get the objection to why do we need to put somebody into a warrior type role to make them cool? Well, actually, because <laughs> I saw a poster that made me laugh. It was a, for a movie called, oh, fuck, what was it? It was like Princess, like the princess or something, but she's like a warrior. You know, it's like, it looks like a traditional princess, but she's holding a sword. And then the quote was like, she's not your typical princess. <laughs> and I started thinking, but for this day and age, isn't she? Aren't all princesses now like sword swinging princesses? Like, I feel like the idea that this was like out of the norm. And I'm like, I feel like for the last 10 years, the trope of the damsel in distress no longer exists. Like that it is now all princesses know how to fight. They're usually fight better than you know the people they're fighting with. And to me, it was funny that they tried to sell it that that was somehow different. But when I say this stuff, I'm not saying Lord of the Rings is the best show I've ever seen in my life, but it definitely, to me, is like a decent show. Yeah. Like as I'm watching it, I'm like, I'm I'm there. I, there's certain mysteries, like the the old guy who landed in the asteroid and stuff. I'm just like, okay, like I'm intrigued where this is going. And some of the emotional stuff works on me. At the same time, I do have a problem with everybody's face (laughs) like i've never seen a cast where every single person's face just makes me like what an odd choice what i just i'm feeling that way for every single casting choice except the dwarves the dwarves are the only ones that to me look like yeah those are what dwarves should look like yeah i'm happy with them and the and the hobbit people they look like (laughs) hobbit people to me yeah we just have to keep this grasp that like you know it's fine to have opinions about things and you just no 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 you're wrong you can't talk about him anymore <laughs> you, you, you just, just can't like, talk about it anymore or else you get cancelled don't you know yeah yeah well you just have to you just have to be aware at the same time that there are certain opinions that may make you look like an online Nazi yeah, yeah. and it's unfortunate <laughs> because it could be a perfectly legitimate opinion but if you want to talk about black elves at length it's not the time now <laughs> Like just see if it, <laughs> see if it, and write about it in a couple of months when everyone's talking about something else. But or or Little Mermaids, yeah. Like I think 
you know, just take a couple of months off the discourse, then come back with your <laughs> Little Mermaid takes, and it'll be fine. And the irony is, like, all these Disney live-action remakes are not as good or well-received as the originals anyways. So it's a funny balance to have to, like, combat racist opinions while also acknowledging that the movie you're defending is also not good. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a feeling I won't be watching either the cartoon or the live-action Little Mermaid at <laughs> So I'm okay to sit <laughs> this one out. <laughs> well, look, we can both sit this one out and listen to some cool music instead. Uh, how about that? So let's listen to this awesome one from Magic Sword and Metavari. I dug the vibe of this one, and I think you guys will dig it too, and it's brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. We're talking about Binkley and River Avenue. And uh, dig it. This is Magic Sword and Metavari with Dressed for Fantasy.
And that was Dressed for Fantasy by Magic Sword and Metavari. And that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the Kroner Club. We're talking about Emil Hampus ML and Mr. Glenn Main. And we're back with Chris from Decoding the Gurus, and we're talking about Little Mermaids and outrage culture. There's quite a few online debates, and you know, it's it's kind of ironic given the nature of our podcast, but I think both Matt and I do our best, although we often feel like everyone does online, to not be led around by, you know, the outrage of the week. And if you can manage that some of the time... I think you're doing all right. <laughs> like, there's a lot of outrage out there. And, you know, if you're managing to mostly avoid it, you're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, basically just stay off Twitter is the... Uh... That helps. That helps. Yeah, stay off Twitter. But, you know, if you used message boards back in the day, I feel like Twitter is just a giant message board with the main difference being that, like, now, whereas before you could, like, type on the message board, Al Pacino is such a prat, like, I hate all his movies. And the difference now is that Al Pacino may appear in your <laughs> mentions and be like, what did you say? <laughs> so, it's just like this danger that random people will discover anything you tweet and it will just be, like, blown up to everyone. So you just you live with that constant knowledge because that didn't used to happen in message boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had an interaction with, not a negative re- interaction, it was a very positive interaction, but, you know, Bill from Bill and Ted? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I would not I would never have imagined that I would ever speak to him. But <laughs> because of Twitter, I said something and, you know, he responded and was very nice and was like, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's an odd interaction that... <laughs> I, it would not happen except for Twitter. Yeah. He's not going to send me an email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, listen, uh, I've just taken a whole lot of your time. I apologize. I know it's very late for you in Japan or early. No, that's fine. This is the hours when my young children are sleeping, so I can relax at, the, at this hour. Do you work from home or do you go to a place? No, I go to a uh, campus. I, I teach in a university, so I can work from home when I'm not teaching, but I I am teaching on most days this semester. So And, and in any case, I do on most occasions go to the office because it's just an you know, easier place to be in a mindset to work. Or at least to think about working. That's that's the reality. But then how much sleep do you get? Well, usually I go to sleep at around 11 or 12. And then I get up at 5. So I get about 5 hours of sleep per night at the minute. But I've got young kids. This is not that unusual, right? That's a common experience. And plus, I had insomnia for most of my life. So it's not a big adjustment. But um, <laughs> but I'm getting older. I'm getting older. So that's the problem. Have you tried listening to pink noise or green noise or whatever the hell? No, I never do that. I just like... I stay awake until I'm forced into sleep while doing something else. So, you know, listening to something or watching something or talking on the podcast, whatever <laughs> the case may be, I'll, I'll just go that way. And I'm kind of fine with it. I'm not going to change my habits now. I, I, the only sad thing about it is that, uh, you know, if you don't sleep that much, you die. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that seems a fairly significant trade-off. But, you know, what can they do? Maybe I'll change it when I'm 50. Yeah. But for now, I, 
I'm, I'm cool with that. All right. Well, listen, where where can people go to listen to Decoding the Gurus? We are easy to find on all podcast streams and places around the internet. We have a subreddit and we have Twitter, you know, channels and all that kind of thing. But like, you just type in Decoding the Gurus. And if you want to hear myself and a more charming Australian waffle about gurus for extended amounts of time, then that will be what you find. So it's been a pleasure. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't talk more about synth wave but i do enjoy it <laughs> i do enjoy it <laughs> well to be to be fair like the irony of my show is although i love synth wave and and the music and we play it on the show even when i have artists on we don't necessarily talk about the music as you know like we don't we just talk about movies and video games and we don't really like because it's really dull like i've heard other people when they, they have shows similar to mine and you know they're talking to artists about like What's your favorite instrument? What keyboard do you like? And it's just people listing products. You know, like, I like the Korg X71, and my favorite patch is the DL78 or whatever, and it's like, it doesn't really make for very interesting... Uh, That's a good point. I didn't think about that, but that would be the case, right? Like, you know, did you see any nice artwork for an album well i like this one that had like kind of neon (laughs) you know a neon landscape oh really yeah yeah and also there's lots of tropes of the synthwave scene that i just don't feel like talking about you know like similar album artwork or you know your band logo is chrome text with a neon squiggle and the band name ends in you know 1982 or 85 and there's a synthwave sun with a lamborghini you know so like some of that stuff i just don't feel like talking about that means sense and I I will say that when I was using Synthwave as like my background for work and research I made my desktop backgrounds into fairly stereotypical like Synthwave album cover kind of backgrounds yeah. and then <laughs> I went to a conference and I was I put my background into this like kind of faded version of that for my slides mm. and I was like that's getting that's getting a bit much but but what <laughs> what also What also kicked me out of that was, I know we discussed this off air, but that was round about the time when, you know, there was this mainstream media coverage of the kind of flash wave stuff. And I was like, maybe I don't want to go to an academic conference. (laughs) I'm like, at this point. Well, the, the difference was with the Fash Wave artists, uh, of which there were three, uh, <laughs> they, who somehow got articles written about them. But anyway, uh, they would often be, they would have some of the Synthwave stuff, but then there would also be a, a few other notable symbols included in the artwork, uh, like swastikas and uh, pictures of Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was my mistake. My slides were just, you know, it was all good except for the inclusion of Hitler. That, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. could send people the wrong message. Yeah, but, um, if you want to be more yeah, subtle, yeah. just show a picture of Himmler instead, because he's a little lesser known. <laughs> it's a very similar name. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good tip. <laughs> so, yeah, I I now feel that it would be perfectly appropriate. But just at that time, it was like there was a rash of, you know, articles about those couple of producers. And I was like, oh, oh well, that's a shame. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's always that thing, though, where you find something you like and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you find something seedy about the guy who made it or the the community did something bad. And you're like, oh, yeah. 
it's that whole uh, artist from the art thing. And yeah. my my policy now is basically all right. If as long as they're not a murderer or a mass <laughs> rapist, then it's you know because everyone it always turns. You're exactly right. It's like any good thing. You're like oh this there's a tournament where they play this video game. Isn't that swell? And then you find out like you know behind the scenes they've been molesting. People. I'm like oh my god. It's like every <laughs> yeah. every fucking thing. It turns out behind the scenes people are assholes. Yeah, this is. I'm I'm a big fan of Follow Ted. This like British, well, it's it's Irish comedy series. But um, the creator is a guy Graham Linehan who made the IT Crowd and other good comedies. He's a very good writer, and he's gone a bit mental over the the whole trans debate. He's he's like a gender critical guy, but he's he's really he's really really into that that's all he does now and it's just unfortunate because you're just like you know you were a good comedy writer and an interest and now you're just pure culture war poisoned yes i mean look i've got i've got my fair share and i'm still fans of some people who have been you know uh, excommunicated from whatever uh i'm a big harvey weinstein fan is what i'm trying to say great (laughs) great guy great guy yeah, he made a couple of errors, yeah, yeah. but, you know, who hasn't? <laughs> Listen, man, I love potted plants. <laughs> so for me, like, yeah, there are still some comedians who, you know, like, I I will still watch interviews with them and listen to their stuff, even though they did bad things. But, like, unless it's, like, horrible, like, you know, Bill Cosby-level, Harvey Weinstein-level kind of things, maybe I won't publicly talk about how much I like them anymore, you know? like <laughs> yeah. Bill Cosby, that would make a, an yeah. interesting choice if you were <laughs> setting that the the rape stuff. I really love the Cosby yeah. show. Don't, maybe you don't need to. Again, if if Twitter didn't exist and you didn't know, it's like I think we have this fascination with like the golden age of Hollywood and stuff. Like everyone seemed better then. It's just because we didn't know what the fuck they were thinking. Like I'm sure all the actors you find, like he was a real good actor, and then it's like you know he like. Uh, punches women in the face right and you're like oh damn but you didn't know about it because they weren't on twitter saying you know what's real great is <laughs> punching women's faces you know and then they see how much likes they can get yeah you're probably right and like my knowledge of every time that i see some documentary about you know how people were there's ex- there's exceptions there are these like people who are surprisingly very good people but if you adopt a pessimistic cynical perspective you're rarely disappointed in this world. Yeah, no. so that's, the, that's the unfortunate thing. But you know, <laughs> you've got a lovely perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but look, I tell you what will cure your cynicism is uh, is some cool music. So let's listen to one more track, and then uh, we'll wind down. I know we're kind of already winding down, but uh, we're going to wind down again. So here is a cool song from Syntronics uh, from the album The Roots. And it's uh, brought to you by my awesome PayPals, because, of course, you can also support Beyond Synth on PayPal by going to beyondsynth.com and clicking the PayPal button. Awesome people like Ross Bruce, the Silver Bruce, King of the PayPals. And then there's Alex Lightspeed, Aka, and Brian West. And this is Syntronics with Dreamcatcher.
And that was Dreamcatcher by Syntronics. A nice tune to sort of wind the show down with, and that uh, was brought to you by my awesome PayPals. We're talking about Austin Whetstone, Jimmy Groon, The Rosconian, Brandon Morin, Digital Dreams, Dan Williams, Russell Nyes, Timothy Warwick, Jersey, and Michael Sackey. And uh, we're back with uh, Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. We're talking about culture wars and people getting canceled on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I've said this before, but I fantasize about like an internet or social media reset or something. You know, like <laughs> we all understand the rules of social media now. And from now on, it would be cool, like, if we were going to be judged, it should be for what we say and do moving forward, you know, now that people actually understand the rules and consequences. Yeah. I mean, obviously, people will, you know, still be fools, but, you know. Yeah. I feel like if you bet on people making bad choices or... you'll not be disappointed and you'll you'll succeed <laughs> in the majority of cases so but but I I do agree that like it is a shame that there is a culture towards offense archaeology and I think that can be weaponized by whatever political movement you're in so it's something that people should be aware that can be used against them as well as for them I, I'm also sort of sympathetic to it as well it's just like it really sucks if you say a one dumb joke and then lose a job like i i do think that sucks but you also don't need to use twitter you don't ever have to say your opinion publicly like you don't have to do it you know why that is that's because the majority of the people that are doing and talking about that are like people whose careers are in journalism or media and so in a way they have to use Twitter. <laughs> For them, it probably is, you know, like a a thing which they they're kind of obliged to do but for average humans normal people no you don't need to it's up to you right <laughs> so so you you choose what to do and you can make an anonymous account if you want right like just stick a little uh, roman bust <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and go at it like <laughs> you know plenty of people do that so i think you just you live by the choices you make and there are there are things that are worth standing up for and there are people that are cancelled who don't deserve it and you know and people can fight back and stuff now but like you should pick your battles and if the little mermaid is is your <laughs> battle <laughs> i i don't know i don't know man i think you've made some bad decisions <laughs> that's all right, man. Well, look, listen, I want you to get some sleep before you go to work because now I feel like you're going to get like one hour of sleep before you have to go in. No, I'm, I'll am i have plenty. Don't worry. But uh, yeah, but it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for inviting me on. I'm now going to utilize your podcast for the purpose it exists for to introduce myself to good music and, you know, interesting stuff outside the Spotify playlist. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for the invitation. Well, yeah, man. And listen, uh, you guys are making an awesome show. Like, uh, I needed it. I just, I needed to hear sort of reasonable sounding voices talk about this stuff because I feel like it was always extremes. I was just getting bored of extremes and uh, <laughs> it was just nice to hear like, oh, these guys are, 
these guys are reasonable dudes, you know? And it was very good. And so I fucking burned through it, man. <laughs> like like I said, I've probably like 70 episodes or something I think I've listened to. And I'm always excited when a new one pops up. And uh, that last one was a treat. And I, I love that Scott Adams fucking <laughs> sample. <laughs> I don't trust people at all. <laughs> it's <funny. laughs> it's yeah. a good He's such a sneak. He's such a <laughs> terrible human. But... Yeah, but well, I I appreciate the the kind words, and you know, I was gonna respond with a self deprecating thing saying it's false advertising to call us reasonable, but you you kind of qualified it by that we're we're pretty moderate in like our positions and takes, and that's fair. That's what we are. We are we are milk toast, pretty middle of the road types, and and so it's it's quite impressive that people get you know occasionally get so upset and worked up about things we say because we are literally two of the most dull <laughs> middle-aged men that you could ever meet but well, that's it's my belief that's though it. yeah like if i had faith in anything it's like i truly believe that most people are in this middle zone and we're just exposed online to the craziness of either direction, but like the furthest reaches, right? Like it's the far right and it's the far left. Yeah. And I believe most people are kind of in the middle, you know, they maybe their views on this topic might lean more this way, but their views on this topic lean more this way. And, and like if you have like real conversations with people in real life, most people seem to be just kind of reasonable people, but for some reason we're just inundated with the fucking craziness <laughs> and both extremes are crazy because by definition, like they're fucking extremes anyways look the point is uh i like what you do <laughs> well i i appreciate that I, like i say and uh it's been an enjoyable chat i'm, I'm awake now mentally but you know <laughs> i'm going to use the energy of this conversation to try and charge myself into dreamland yes let's, let's see if it works <laughs> yeah. but uh i i appreciate the conversation and uh thanks for listening and exposing your listeners to the podcast awesome man well you have a lovely japanese morning and uh yeah have a have a good one yeah <laughs> i don't know I, i'm terrible at ending conversations so just so we're clear <laughs> I, say, I say goodbye like 50 times like i'm saying goodbye to like a girlfriend on the phone in high school so that's all right we do it too yeah <laughs> well enjoy your morning afternoon or evening whichever one applies i'm very bad with time differences yeah. <laughs> well it's 2 p.m here so. well have a nice sleep when you get to the evening yes that's, that's how i'll end <laughs> all right take care dude <laughs> bye-bye and that was my chat with Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. I hope you enjoyed the show. I know it was a little different than normal, but uh, sometimes you got to spice things up with some spice. But don't worry, next week we'll be back to talking to Synthwave producers. I got some good shows ahead, and we are going into December, so we are going to be winding down Season 10 of Beyond Synth, and so I have to start coming up with ways to uh, jazz up the program next season, and I'm feeling a little frisky. I feel like we're going to do a little reboot and uh, completely change the style of the show. For fun, why not? Been doing this show for 10 years, it's always fun to try something new and uh, that's what we're gonna do i feel like my voice is fading so i'm gonna go now uh have a lovely weekend week whenever this airs uh thank you for listening to the show don't forget you can support beyond synth by going to patreon.com slash 
Beyond Synth or go to beyondsynth.com and there's links there to donate on PayPal and stuff like that. And I will talk to you next time on Beyond Synth, the best synthwave chat show there is. Beyond Synth is made possible by the supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash beyondsynth or donating via PayPal at beyondsynth.com. If you want to submit music to the show, please email beyondsynthsubmissions at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to Beyond Synth on YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, Twitter, and Facebook. May the Force be with you. Beyond Synth is made in partnership with your mom. <laughs> <laughs>